Hey, glad that you're here tonight. This is a part of the service where uh, one of our staff has the privilege of teaching uh, from God's Word. Right now, we're in a series called Founders, where we've been looking at the founders of our faith, mothers and fathers from the Old Testament, from the first half of the Bible, whose stories we can look at. We can see how they lived lives that were honoring to God. We can be inspired, but we can also ask ourselves, how can we apply the things that we see and learn from their life into our own. But we're also encouraged by them. Hebrews 11 tells us that we're encouraged by those that have gone before us because it gives us a model or a rubric on how we live our lives and how we live lives as kingdom, godly people. And so, hey, I want to thank you guys for being here once again. I know you've been welcomed a few times, but specifically, if you're here because it's Interfaith Weekend, K, we're glad you're here. Yeah? Yeah. I feel so self-conscious. Um, I mean, just normally, because I'm insecure. Um, but I also feel self-conscious like a 90s like, DJ with this sweet corded microphone. Um, but I'll try to keep it under control. Great. Um, so we're so glad you're here for Interfaith. We've been participating in the kind of new initiatives around Interfaith and K because we've been a part of K as Chi Alpha Campus Ministries for about 20 years. And I find for me it's really helpful to be a part of Interfaith Conversations for a few reasons. The first of which is important to have friends and be around people who look differently than you and who think differently than you. That life is so much richer when you're not just around people that look like you or think the exact same way that you do. But there's also another reason, and I love being honest about this other reason up front, is that as a follower of Jesus, as somebody whose life has been changed by Jesus, uh, as a high school student in the local church, as a Chi Alpha student at the University of Alabama, and then even now as a staff member, my life is still being changed by Jesus, I love being a part of interfaith conversation because it gives me a chance to just share about how amazing Jesus has been in my life. And so I love being open and honest with that up front. That some of the best parts for me of being a part of the interfaith council and interfaith chapels is the opportunity to share. To share with people who may have an experience with Christianity, who may not. Uh, but just to say that Jesus has been amazing in my life. And then to lean into what we see in the book of Psalms where it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. So inviting people um, into an opportunity to experience God. I love the time of worship that we had, and we're living out this idea that when two or three people are gathered, it says in the New Testament, that Jesus abides in the praises of his people. And so for us, sharing about Christianity or uh, evangelism isn't about like forcing somebody to recognize that the Bible is true or making somebody say Jesus is Lord or having them wear flannel and have glasses and be a hipster and come every Thursday night. That's not our goal. Sometimes those things happen. That's not our goal. Our goal is just to, as Scripture tells us, to bear witness, to say, I've seen these things, I've experienced these things, it's happened because of Jesus. Would you be willing to explore them too? And that's one of the reasons that I'm so glad you're here, especially if you came because you saw Thursday Night Worship on the Interfaith calendar. So excited that you're here and wanted to make that special welcome. Also wanted to mention something before we jump into our text. So if you're curious, tonight we're talking about Rahab. We're going to be in Joshua 2 primarily, but also in several places where she's mentioned in the New Testament. Um, but I also um, realize, and I've shared this quote before, and I think it's important, and it guides so much of what we do and what I try to do as a director and as a campus minister, is Spurgeon said that it's the role of the pastor to, on one hand, exegete or try to understand uh, people, the culture, and on the 
other hand, at the same time, to try to understand and exegete the scriptures, the Bible. And we know that God's word is helpful, it's good, it's for rebuke and for correction. So we find ourselves many times as a staff team, myself as a minister, how do we best do that? How do we allow God to, to drive our conversations but not to be blind or to be more aware of the world around us and how reality and faith collide? So I've been thinking a lot about that lately uh, in this current political climate as the things around the world unfold. And honestly, this week I was really um, encouraged by something that I read, and I just wanted to share it with you. In 2005, a group of evangelical Christian leaders gathered um, in 2005 to discuss the refugee crisis. And I thought it was helpful that these leaders gathered because they were asking the questions that hopefully you're trying to ask is, how does my faith or how does my framework engage or interact or, or how does it work with what I'm seeing in the world around me. And you may know this, that Chi Alpha is a part of a larger denomination called the Assemblies of God, which I'm proud to be a part of. But our students, you guys are from multiple denominations. Or you're like, what's a denomination? And that's totally okay. Um, we're an interdenominational experience trying to be Christ's ambassadors. Chi Alpha is what that name means. And I read this, and I was really inspired by it as I was reading the news this week, and as I've been talking with international students, and I've been talking with students um, whose family stories could be or would be affected by what we see happening in the world around us. And so in 2005, this group of leaders gathered talking about the refugee crisis, and one of the leaders that ended up talking about this and signing this document that came out of this meeting was a man named Alton Garrison. You probably don't know him, but he's from our denomination. And, and I don't know about you, but whenever you're part of a large group of things. Um, sometimes you're like excited by what your group does, and sometimes you're like, I can't believe my group did that. Have you guys ever been there? It's just me and my denomination? Okay, hopefully that's not recorded on the podcast. My presbyter is not listening. But anyways, so right, like you're like, yes, that's us. And then sometimes you're like, oh, no, that's not, that's not me. What? Oh, my friends don't ask about that. So this is one of those moments where like I was proud to like have grown up in this denomination to be credentialed minister. And I wanted to read this because it really spoke to me and some friends and I were talking about it. And I think it's helpful for us as followers of Jesus. And here's the thing before I read this that's important to mention is that there are many people, sometimes in rooms like this, but oftentimes out there online, that claim to be Christians that may not be acting very much like Christ. Now, I encourage you, when you encounter that, to judge somebody based on the character and person of Jesus. Many of you probably know this, but the term Christian starts appearing in first century Antioch, and it, it's a derogatory term. It means little Christs. But I love how uh, the people redeem this term, and to be a Christian means to be like Christ. And so there are times during my day where I am a Christian, I claim to be a Christian, where I'm not Christ-like in different parts of my day. I can confess, this is my job. I should probably not have those moments, but I do. I am far from perfect. Any student that knows me is like, yes, he's finally admitted it. Praise God. Yes, your prayers have been answered. Thank you so much, Steph Large. <laughs> but I think as we engage with faith and the realities around us, there's some important things to note as kingdom-minded people. And I love what these hundred leaders came away with from this meeting. They said this, in light of the political concerns, in light of what we're seeing in, in terms of um, immigration and refugees and policies and crises, we want to affirm the following as Jesus followers. And they came up with a few statements. That refugees and immigrants possess the image of God and as such are infinitely valuable to God and to us. 
that refugees and immigrants are our neighbor, and it's a privilege to love them. That as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we must care sacrificially for the refugee, the foreigner, the stranger, and the immigrant. That we will motivate and prepare our churches, our movements, our ministries on campus to care for refugees and immigrants. I love these last two, and they really spoke to me personally. We will not be motivated by fear, but by love for God and others. And that Christians, true followers of Jesus, are called to grace-filled and humble speech about the issues regarding immigration and refugees. As a staff, we wanted to read that and to, to kind of verbally sign our names to that because we believe that it's easy to get caught up in politics and forget that there are people behind stories and statistics. We also think that it's important to say that as followers of Jesus, with Jesus as our example, that our treatment of somebody should not be dictated by what they believe or what they look like. That if you read the Gospels and if you see Jesus for who he was, that is the truth of the matter. And so before you get offended because you think I'm acting too political once again on a Thursday night before I jump into the Bible text and you've zoned out, let me tell you that as followers of Jesus, we don't have the privilege and we don't get to compartmentalize our lives. And what we've been learning as a staff team over the past few years, so before you think this is a reactionary statement about political stuff going on, for a few years we've been realizing through this missionary named Dick Brogdon that in the church, in Christian circles, particularly in America, and the streams that our staff kind of lives in, that we have unfortunately believed, tricked ourselves into believing that safety or that our safety is a value, or that when we come to Jesus, everything should work out, and there's no risk, and it's all safe. But what we find from the life of Jesus and the apostles, 11 out of 12, which were martyred, that Jesus is calling us to a life filled with peace and meaning, but not a life that's safe. And it's easy, it's so easy to rationalize mistreatment of others by prioritizing safety of self. Let me tell you a little bit of a story, because that's kind of my job. That was supposed to be funny, but whatever. Wow. Love it, the pity laughter. Reminds me of when I was homeschooled. Thanks, Mom. Prom was great. Anyways. My son's two years old, his name's Jeremiah, I call him JJ. And um, he was playing with his dinosaur the other day. It's not a real dinosaur, okay? He's not Justin Bieber. It's, it's a fake dinosaur. And he has this dinosaur, and he's playing with it with his trains, with his cranes. And I'm not, he doesn't know that I'm watching, but he keeps saying, dinosaur, you're safe. You're like, the whole game that he was playing was getting the dinosaur safe. Well, and then, like, the dinosaur was acting up, and so, like, he threw the dinosaur into timeout. <laughs> and then I realized, like, am I really discipling my son well? He thinks like the two things like to achieve with your toys is safety and punishment. <laughs> so I'm rethinking a lot of my parenting after claiming to be an expert last week. But that story just goes to show that even without realizing, we can prioritize ourselves and our safety. And we can do so at the cost of others. But I love how those leaders stated that we're sacrificially going to take up the privilege of serving the foreigner, the stranger our neighbor, the immigrant, and the refugee. Let's jump into our text, but before we do, let's pray. 
Jesus, as we study another character from the Old Testament, as we think through the risks this character took, this person took, that Rahab took, I pray that you would allow her story to instruct us, to guide us, to teach us, and if needed, to convict us and challenge us. God, we thank you for this time we get, and you're so worthy of our attention. Help us not to be distracted, but to lean in to who you are. In your name, amen. So we're in Joshua 2. It'll be on the screen. You can also look it up in your Bible. If you need a Bible, we have free Bibles. We can give you one, but also there's these things called apps. They have Bibles too. Um, so Joshua 2, and I'm going to read. I know I can read quickly at times, so I'm going to slow down a little bit. And we're really just going to focus on what we know from the story of Rahab. Her stories in the Old Testament, we see her mentioned in three other times. In the New Testament, including in the lineage of David, thus in the lineage of Jesus, uh, in a in the scriptures, which are sometimes couched in their cultural context, in some cases patriarchy, no surprise there, unfortunately, we see that she is honored and mentioned multiple times, which is both countercultural but points us to know that not only does God want to work through all people, but that he has a very special plan for Rahab. And I'm going to tell you why she was used by God in such a way, because then you and I will know how to be used by God as well. So we're in Joshua 2. I honestly, if, if you're there, um, I was joking with the staff this week. I really uh, wanted to just read verse 2 on instead of reading verse 1 uh, because there's this location in verse 1 that's going to make me sound like I'm cussing. I'm not cussing. If you get a copy of the podcast, do not cut it to make it look like I'm cussing and send it to my mom who homeschooled me to keep me away from those shenanigans. But I'm going to read it, and I'm going to pronounce it correctly. Josh helped me pronounce it correctly. He's been to seminary, so if you have problems with that, just talk to him. And then we're going to forget this moment ever happened. If you, you don't get the joke yet, you'll get it in just a minute. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. I grew up in a fundamentalist church. I feel so guilty right now. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites, God's chosen people, have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and who entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. Verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. Then verse 6 starts these parentheses, which give us a subtext of the story. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Verse 8, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. Pause. This is so cool that she knows about this. This is a hundred years before scholars tell us. So she has heard through oral tradition what God has been doing through his people and how miraculous he is, and she's repeating it to other followers of God. Verse 11. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. 
Verse 12, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you'll spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives, for your lives, the minister, if you don't tell what we are doing, we'll treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. Pause here. This is completely not the norm culturally or covenantally with the people of God as they were fighting and finding victory in military terms in different areas of land. In other words, it was typical um, that when a when a battle took place, that oftentimes the invading army would not leave any survivors. This was not just true in the story of the people of God, but also true in other cultures at the time. So it's very abnormal that they would offer this exemption to her. In other places in the Old Testament, we see where God's people have won a military battle and have either kept some possessions or kept some people alive and then been punished by God. But speaking on God's authority, they're doing things a little bit different and saying, you know what, okay, we're not going to defeat everybody. We're going to let you live. So I know the Old Testament is violent. Sometimes it's hard to keep up with. I sometimes get squeamish as well. But it is important to note that something different is taking place and in all other stories of military advances of God's chosen people, the Israelites, in the Old Testament. Verse 14, our lives for your lives. I'm reading this again. If you don't tell what we're doing, we'll treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. Verse 15, so she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless... When we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. So that's the first condition. And unless you have brought your father and mother and brothers and all your family into the house, that's the second condition. Verse 19, if any of them go outside your house onto the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. They're vouching for their safety and protection because she's about to take a risk, and she has already. Verse 20. But if you tell what we are doing, we'll be released from the oath you made us swear. The third condition of their interesting agreement on the rooftop while being pursued. Verse 21, agreed, she replied, let it be as you say, or amen. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Verse 22, when they left, they went into the hills. They stayed there three days, as she instructed, until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that happened to them. Verse 24, last verse of the chapter. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All of the people are melting in fear because of us. Then later, in Joshua 3 and 4, I'll paraphrase and finish the story for you. They win the battle. They overtake Jericho. But the spies honor this commitment they made to Rahab, and her and her family are safe. And her and her family, more importantly, aren't just safe, but they are grafted in to God's family. Jewish scholars tell us that she represents and is historically the first Gentile convert, the first non-Jewish believer in the God of Abraham. It's also interesting to note that like Deborah, when she makes a decision, she realizes that when she risks, other people benefit. 
her family benefits, but in a larger way, the people of God, the Israelites, get access to the promised land for the first time in history, and it happens through Jericho, and it happens because of Rahab. This is why we see Rahab's story repeated or referenced in other places. In the Gospel of Matthew, in a paternal genealogy, she's one of two women that are mentioned in Matthew 1, 5, and 6, and she's identified in verse um, 5, and then in verse 6 we see that she is a, that, that David is a direct descendant of her, and then Jesus, a direct descendant of David. In Hebrews eleven thirty one, by faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Another interesting angle, right? She was part of the disobedient people living in Jericho, but she had heard of God. And she was the only person in her entire community, her entire city, that was saved because she realized that her current framework of fear of God's people wasn't abundant life. She realized it wasn't the best. And so she decides to do something that is difficult, I think, for all of us to do. But it's important if we're to follow Jesus. She's willing to be wrong in order to be made right. She's willing to say that my people, my culture, the religious beliefs that I inherited, I don't think that they're up to par with what I'm hearing about your people, about God of Abraham, about what he has done a hundred years ago and what I believe him to do now. She's also mentioned in James, which we studied all of last semester, in chapter 2, verse 24, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now, the writers of Scripture aren't referencing that she's a prostitute uh, as a way to be derogatory, but what they are doing is mentioning that so that we would know how drastically her future was different than her past because of one decision she made. In other words, no matter what you've done or where you've been, you could be one decision away from a brand new story. What's wonderful about the character and the person of Rahab and why she is a founder of your faith and mine if you're a Christian is because Rahab was willing to risk herself, to risk her reputation, to risk her safety so that something new would be done. So something new would be written about her family's life and the life of the people of God. There was three things that she was required to do and that she fulfilled, one of which was to have a, a scarlet cord on the outside of her door, very specific. And, and those that were reading the story for the very first time would be reminded of Passover and the celebration that took place commemorating the Passover, the time when God's people took the blood of an animal and put it on the doorpost so that death would pass by as God was punishing Pharaoh, the captors and the oppressors of God's people at that time in Egypt. And so what's interesting is that she is a unique connection from the story of God through God's people, the Jews, to the new story, the new covenant of God, the story of grace personified in Jesus by connecting them in the promised land. And what we find out uh, as believers, as followers of Jesus, is that we aren't looking for a promised land, but instead we are following a promised person. That in the Old Testament, the promised land represents God best. It's a, it's a retelling or reenactment in some ways of Eden, God's perfection and design at work without distraction. But we find even more fullness through Jesus and the Holy Spirit 
Not a promised land, but a promised person. What's interesting to me about Rahab is that she was willing to hear about God and not just say that she believed, but instead to allow her beliefs to be shown through her actions. I don't know if you guys ever deal with this at all, but sometimes I fall in love with the idea of something more than the something. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Two words for you, rock band. Do you guys remember that? You were probably three, but whatever. So I used to love rock band. I was, uh, wow. (laughs) Gotta love it. So I was a middle school youth pastor, um, which was awesome and terrible at the same time because it was like being with the group of you except nobody was wearing deodorant. And I remember, this sounds creepy now, but my wife and I, we hosted like a rock band tournament in our apartment when we first got married for middle school students, which I'm sure parents were like, why are you going over to this rando dad bod rock band guy? That's why I had, that's why I had Jeremiah, by the way. The dad bod just became more acceptable when I actually became a dad. So number one reason I had a child, so that's awesome. So I remember like playing rock band and I was like, I should play real guitar. And then I was like, I've had this real guitar for like six years. It's way more fun to hit buttons. Or maybe like you've been in a small group or in a church where you just like talk all the time about evangelism, about like reaching people who don't know Jesus, but then you realize like nobody's even doing it. Like you fall in love with the idea of something and you almost get like the emotional high of doing it. That's why some of you guys go to the library and I see you guys in there and you're on Facebook. Like you have left, you have left the comfort of Hotel Cassell. Is it still called that? Is it still called? Okay, cool. I'm still relevant, y'all. You have left that comfort to go to the library to sit on furniture from the 80s that hasn't been cleaned since the 90s. And I, and I walk around and half of the people are on Facebook. And I'm like, don't you know you can get that in your dorm? That's actually in your pocket on your phone. Or on your watch, if you're Josh Jones. Because he has an Apple watch. And I think about it, and it's like, we have these idea of things, and then there's the actual things. And so, in t- tonight's message and reading about Rahab, the story appears very simple, and it is, but that doesn't mean it's easy to live out. And you may be sitting here like, I've heard stories like this. Obey God, and he does cool things. And my question would be like, but are you doing it? C.S. Lewis says it's not that Christians needs more instruction, just more reminding. So I want to remind us tonight of something very simple but profound, something that's not easy to live but it's always worthwhile, is that good decisions, big or small, made for God, have a grand impact even beyond what we see. Faith is what we don't see but what we hope for is what Paul tells us in Romans. As we kind of as I'm kind of kind of take this message for a landing, if you will. I've got a few more minutes up here. I do want to share some, something that's, that's somewhat awkward and depressing. It's my critique. I was, I was going to say of our generation, but I'm a little bit older than you. So I'll just say it's a critique of your generation. I'll just be more honest, right? Sometimes I'm like, it's our problem. And you guys are like, come on, you're old. So this is, this is more something I see. And I don't want to be like every other like blogger on Huffington Post. It's like millennials are the reason for everything crappy. I don't think that. Actually, I give my life, and our staff gives our lives because we think that your generation has the most potential out of any other generation. I mean, don't ask us that on Friday after a long week, but we'll tell you that on Monday or Tuesday, okay? 
here's the critique uh, I have of your generation. And it's also a critique of me, but I'm beyond trying to fit within your guys' group. That sometimes you would rather do nothing at all instead of doing something small that might be worthwhile. That you'd rather just binge Netflix or change the world. But there's nothing in between. And there's no framework for small steps. Let me tell you about how unhelpful that is. Because you're just going to be watching Netflix for forever in the library. Which doesn't even make sense because everyone's clogging the internet and it's standard def. But whatever, that's another issue. Is that small steps and small things are what great stories are made of. Because as followers of Jesus, we aren't responsible for making things happen or being successful, but we are responsible for our obedience. Obedience isn't sexy. Obedience isn't glamorous. Very few people wear a shirt that says, Obedience, yeah, get some. <laughs> Nobody says that. But obedience is incredibly powerful in the hands of a loving father. Rahab, outside of her context, outside of her normal routine, she takes a small step. She tells the spies, okay, I'll hide you. She tells the king, the leader, no, nah, I don't know who they were. I always love people who get like into scripture for lying, but it's a good thing. Like, I wish I knew that when I was homeschooled. I would have been like, mom, look, it is okay. Look at Rahab. And then she'd have been like, go to the principal, which is my dad, and it would not have ended well. <laughs> you and I are called as followers of Jesus to make decisive decisions. Here's how you can really know if you're allowing yourself to be transformed from the inside out. My pastor, Mark Batterson, says this. He says, if you're just into kind of behavioral management, you can usually control how you act, but it's very hard to fake how you react. Do you know what I mean? Like, if someone cuts me off uh, when I'm taking my son to school, I usually don't just, like, put up a cross. I'm not usually like, bless you. I'm usually not like, see you in heaven, pinky finger. Now my son's like, daddy honk, daddy, why did you honk? Daddy honked. And then he goes and tells my wife, daddy honked today. I'm like, man, I hate you, dude. You're a sinner. You're far from God. You better be grateful for the age of innocence, son. You better be grateful. <laughs> Rahab has moments, lead like Jesus, this de devotional says in relation to this story, that she had seconds to decide. So God had clearly been doing something in her heart. She had heard the story about something God did 100 years ago. And I want us to think about this as we prepare a response, as the band comes up, and as we think through, as we worship, as we sing another song. It's not just about like, ending the night with the song because we started the night with the song. We don't preach for um, applause. We, we preach for action and not for you to take action that would benefit us, but action that would benefit your story. Here's what's important is that I believe that there are people here, and as I've been praying, I feel so strongly about this, that there are people here who have been, who have known about God and who God has been working on their hearts, but they have not yet taken a step of faith. Can I tell you that I'm just praying that you have opportunities this week to risk, to be honest with your roommate or your family or a friend about what you truly believe. I'm praying that you have an interesting week, 
a strange thing happens where you have to be honest with what God's been doing in your life. Some of you are still like, my family, my roommates still think Kyle was a fraternity. And you're like, and I'm kind of just letting it go. Can I tell you that Rahab had been prepared, but she was also in the moment of integrity, willing to make a decision to be on God's side against her own experience, against her own culture, against all the people around her. She was willing to say, you know what, I've been wrong. The way I'm living, my current framework is wrong. And God is right. And I love how she didn't have all the answers. She wasn't a small group leader yet. She wasn't in Sunday school. She didn't have a fancy name tag from K Spiritual Life Center. She just said, I heard this is what God does. And all the people I know are afraid. Afraid of what they see in the world. Afraid of the brokenness. Afraid of what you might do under the power of God. I just want to be on this team. I think there are students here tonight, and maybe this describes you. Where you've made an excuse that what you do doesn't matter. And you thought, I'll be okay, or I'll fix this later, or I'll ask for forgiveness later. But I think God will want to remind you that not only does he want to do something in you, he wants to do something through you. And scripture tells us that his ways are higher than ours, so he wants to do something greater than you can imagine. But let me tell you, unfortunately, it starts with that very small thing that you know you need to do, but you've been putting off. Maybe it's starting an active devotional life, it's joining a small group, it's shifting from living just a confessional life to living a life of repentance. Because confession says I'm wrong, but repentance says I'm wrong, and now I'm going to walk towards rightness, right relationship, righteousness. It's really cool in this day and age to be authentic, right? To be like, oh, I messed up again. Like, nobody really likes the person that's prideful. We always like the person who's just like, oh, I did this wrong, I did that wrong. But what God is calling us isn't just to admit that we're wrong, but to say that he's right, and how can we be a part of that rightness? He's asking us to go beyond confession and to go into right living with him. Rahab does that. Rahab gives up her, her, her employment. She's no longer a prostitute. She's living in God's family. She's in the promised land. And I also love that she's making these changes not in a new place. Because God's people, the Israelites, overtook Jericho, and she got to stay there. So she's living in the same house. She's got the same temptations. There's no new scenery, but she allows God to do a change within. How? From a small decision in the hands of a loving father. Why don't you stand with me as we pray through our response to this tonight? God, I pray right now that even before we sing, God, I know that I can't inspire, I, I can't persuade students to know what you've called them to do, but I trust you to know that you love students more than I do even on my best day. So God, as you speak to their spirit, as you speak to them through scripture, as you speak to them through a friend or a small group leader, God, I pray that whatever step, whatever risk, God, they take it, that they live out that Colossians narrative. That we're to do all things as if working for you, God, and not for others around us, not for bosses or masters, but we're to do it as if we're working directly for you. God, I'm so obsessed sometimes with where I'm going that I forget that it's important how I get there. God, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would enlighten, would bring to attention decisions that need to be made, some very quickly. Some decisions that maybe have long-term effects but need to be made and, and need to be resolved 
in the heart and soul of a student. Maybe it's a decision about belief, about repentance, about a, a sinful habit. Maybe it's a decision about speaking truth or sharing how good you are with somebody who may not know you. God, whatever it is, I pray that we'd remember and that we would take joy in the fact that you are always faithful to the obedience of your people. And that as Ezekiel says 23 times, it's for your name's sake that you intervene in, the, in our lives. God, thanks that we get to be a part of your story and help this to be a story that we're involved in and engaged in tonight and tomorrow and we're not in this room. Jesus, we ask this. Give that word to us. Give that direction to us as we sing and as we pray. In your name, Father. Amen.